This is episode 450 of the Macworld podcast for April 1st, 2015. We're brought to you this week by High Five. You can find out more about the High Five conferencing service at highfive.com slash Macworld. So this week we've got a few news briefs to talk about. We're going to talk about Apple's trade-in program, Tim Cook's Indiana behavior, and the launch of Tidal. Then we'll get into the Steve Jobs book club, talking about the latest in a series, an endless series of Steve Jobs bios. I'm joined this week by several people. The stalwart Susie Oaks, executive editor of Macworld. Hello, Susie. Hi, Glenn. Nice to be here again. Great to be talking to you. And we have two guests this week as well. Leah Yamshan, the Associate Managing Editor of Mac World. Hello, Leah. Hi, Glenn. Happy to be podcasting with you for the first time. Hooray! New new people. And uh, and we also have Jeff Carlson, who is, I have to say, uh, at a disclosure, a longtime friend and former office mate of mine, also a writer, photographer, and late-nighter, and a long-term Macworld contributor. Jeff, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. I don't know that you and I have been on a podcast before, or if we have, maybe just one or two. Which I is... think maybe a Mac Pundit showdown on a, on a previous Macworld podcast maybe a few uh, years yes. ago. Uh, back when we were we were uh, horrible enemies trying to score points. Uh, yes, but back boom. then. <laughs> <laughs> boom. That was good. That was good. Well, uh, so this week we have a few different things to talk about. We're going to start with some news because uh, there's a few different things going on. And uh, Susie, Apple has long accepted certain kinds of trade-ins at the store, but we heard this week that the rumors were true. They're going to take Android, Windows Phone, and Blackberries to trade in against uh, against its products. That seems like a uh, is that desperation? That doesn't seem like with what they're selling, they need to suddenly do that. Why should they start taking other phones for trade in value? I mean, it's probably a good idea to do this right before the Apple Watch launches because uh, the watch <laughs> is going to have a halo effect on the phone. The phone will have a halo effect on the watch because you need the phone to use the watch. So I think they just want to make it really easy. They've already done some kind of switching help. So if you show up with an Android phone and you want to switch to an iPhone, they'll help you move your contacts and your documents and get it all set up. And the carriers all do trade-ins. So if you want to switch from AT&T to T-Mobile, you can bring in your phone and they give you credit towards your bill. And so, so you could already switch your Android phone for an iPhone and get some credit, um, just not through Apple. So Apple's just going to do that in the stores now, which is nice. And then you know, you know your phone is going to get recycled. You're not going to have to throw it away. Um, and you get a little bit of credit. Uh, I think they're giving out gift cards. So if you show up in-store, they give you, you know, like instant credit right there. But you can also mail it in, I think, and, and they'll give you a gift card, which is kind of nice. This- I have this picture of people taking in uh, Android phones and other phones and Apple shoveling them into a furnace, turning on the heat, (laughs) doing a press, and out comes an Apple Watch. Here you go. We've transmuted this into something. They could put it in a little shooting gallery and let you shoot it or something with lasers. (laughs) Everyone likes lasers. That could be a whole competition. So has anybody on this podcast, has an Android phone or another phone been your primary phone at some point in your life? Very briefly, I drove a Nexus 4 when I was at Tech Hive. It was pretty nice. Um, the best thing about it was that it was totally unlocked, and I brought it to Europe and threw a SIM card in, and it worked just fine. And I've never been able to do that with any of my AT&T phones. So. Same. When I was with um, Tech Hive, my secondary phone was the Samsung Galaxy Note 2, which was giant. And um, I never used it as my primary phone, but I would always kind of compare apps between the two ecosystems. And it was never, you know, quite enough to make me want to switch full time. But it did prepare me for using the iPhone 6 Plus because going from that giant phone <laughs> to my current giant phone didn't feel like such a leap. Yeah, you were all about the bigger I iPhones. I like the big phones. You were like, it's about time yeah. because that was the nice thing about my Note 2 is that it was huge. Yeah, I used my Note 2 um, when I was traveling in Europe and covering Mobile World Congress. And when I came back and switched back to my iPhone 4S at the time, I was like, what is this tiny device? I couldn't even handle it. So. I still have that happen. My wife has a 5S and she'll hand me her phone to do something and I feel like I'm holding a thimble. I'm yeah. like, what is this? How did I work on this? Yeah. It's like a microscopic. You get used to the side upgrade. The size upgrades really quickly. I'm wondering if maybe they'll let me bring in my uh, my old Trio because I think that's Ooh. once I 
Once I got the first iPhone, uh, I, you know, I was hooked. Even even though the first one didn't do a whole lot, I was like, oh, they finally like understand you know, some of their frustrations. Uh, so I only have a trio that I could send in, but now That's I'm sort of curious phone. to see. I'm sort of curious to see, like, will they take it? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Did they did they offer any info about you know the the pricing or what the like trade in value for some of these devices are? Is it a flat fee or does it kind of depend on what you're bringing in? I haven't seen how they're going to evaluate it yet. I was trying to find mm-hmm. uh, there must be I don't know if they have an official thing posted, but uh, I expect they have to you know power it up and make sure. The question is like, do they want to put more of these phones back in the market? Like, are they taking this program over directly and just literally destroying the phones, like putting them into electronics recycling? It would be. I mean, it's um. I don't want to say it's anti-competitive, but it's certainly most old phones are not very useful with a few, some exceptions. And I, should, I mean, that's exaggerating. We have some uh, old iPhones that we use as essentially iPod touches in the house. But I wonder if they will be literally taking them out of the market. It's like a like a gun buyback. <laughs> <laughs> that wouldn't yeah. surprise me at all. Um, and, you know, what they're really doing is they they are sort of jumping into the buying experience in a forceful way because a lot of people who are thinking about getting a new phone, if they have an Android, they're probably going to go to the mall and they're going to, you know, go talk to whoever in the AT&T store and whoever's in the AT&T store is you know, definitely going to steer them to something cheap and Android and maybe something they'll get a commission from. And so Apple is like, oh, well, you know, if you're thinking about an iPhone, we're going to make this super easy for you and you can just walk into one of our stores and get something a lot better and not have to deal with all that stuff. I do like the Apple Watch thing, though. I think that's a, that makes a lot of sense in mm-hmm. terms of timing. Like, why do it now without a new iPhone out where they're not having issues with sales? But, yeah, it's like, all right, well, I want to get a $350 item or a $1,000 item. But if I take the collection of Android phones that are in my drawer, none of which I'm using right now, here's uh, – I think I've got five or six of these. Hand them over. Maybe you get a few hundred dollars and, and you move on. Uh, yeah, if you well, get a good trade-in price for your Android phone, then maybe they can upsell you with the watch. They could be like, okay, you're already getting this new phone. The phones, since they're subsidized, don't feel like a big expense up front, but the watch can feel like a big expense up front because you're paying for it all at once. So the phone and the watch together, you could get out of there for as little as $550. If they <laughs> knock a couple hundred bucks off that by taking your brand new Galaxy S6 or something, I don't know why you would get a Galaxy S6 <laughs> and then immediately. <laughs> Yeah, I really doubt they're going to do anything with these except for recycle them because they already have a trade-in program for old iPhones, iPods. You can bring them any computer. You could bring them a 10-year-old gateway and they will take it for you and recycle, you know, send, they have a, a third-party recycling firm that they contract with. So that, that's probably where these phones will end up, but they haven't said for sure. Well, it's good. There's literally gold in those phones. Not even, not as much gold as is in the uh, the uh, Apple Watch edition, but there's tiny amounts. If they melt them all down, you can make an Apple Watch edition out of it. Uh, another bit of news this week on our agenda is uh, Tim Cook's uh, first his tweet about a new law passed in Indiana, and then a full length op ed piece in the Washington Post in which he took a formal stand. Leah, does it surprise you that Apple is now at the forefront of uh, social progressive movements? It's it's a little surprising, but in I think it's surprising in a really nice way. Um, it's it's great to see a company like Apple, and especially under the the Tim Cook regime, um, take such a like a for, take such a forward thinking stance about it. And uh, obviously, Tim Cook has you know personal connections to to this. Um, but I feel like for him to step forward to represent Apple as a whole in this way, um, it's it's good. It seems like it's an extension of things he's done before. He's taken strong stands now in a way that uh, well, we'll get to what Steve Jobs would have done or wouldn't have done. Mm-hmm. In a moment, but, but it was <laughs> it was baby steps, kind of in a way, um, since Tim Cook took over. Um, this he maybe if this had happened like a year or two ago before um, Tim had opened up a bit more about his own personal life, maybe we wouldn't have seen such a such a bold move before. But the timing of 
everything just kind of seems right. So I should give people context. I'm sure everyone listening has got to know about this, but it's a it was a, a bill passed under the name of Religious Freedom, which opens the door in this specific formulation in Indiana, and I believe also an Arkansas bill that was already passed or made law there allows the potential for discrimination based on sexual orientation and possibly some other factors in a way that laws that are currently on the books in other states and the federal law uh, don't allow. In some states, there are specific anti-discrimination prohibitions that would override any such law. So there's, there's, uh, in fact, the original law, the federal law, was passed in the Clinton administration, and, and the idea was to not have to force people in certain areas to do things against their religious beliefs, and it was specifically designed to allow uh, Native American religions that use drugs that are controlled substances to use them without being prosecuted, is my, is my understanding. Uh, so in this new formulation, the Indiana bill goes, um, winds up going much Further, and without getting into the politics of it, even uh, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce opposes this bill. Apple, the largest company in the world, opposed this bill. Many businesses in Indiana, there's been sort of a despot flurry. I've read uh, many conservative thinkers talk about how this bill is actually in opposition to to uh, the nature of America as a, as a secular democracy. Um, so it's not just uh, liberals and progressives and uh, people in the Democratic Party. It's a whole spectrum of people uh, who all believe from different angles that this law uh, does not protect people in the way that we that, that should be as Americans. So I you know that is politics, but it's interesting when you see the entire spectrum unfolding. Well, it's also interesting to think that that you know Apple is now a, a, a big umbrella, and Tim Cook knows this, and so I think part of what he's doing, in addition to just sort of you know advancing a a, a social idea, um, is also saying to other businesses like, hey, you don't have to just go along with this because of the you know the the laws or the conditions or um, the you know, sort of uh, you know the way the 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 breeze is blowing. You can stand up for this and, you know, we're Apple, we're big, we're powerful, and we can lead by example by doing this. So he's – I think, you know, this is something that, that is being communicated to, you know, all of us and, and customers and all that. But I think it, it's also just as important that he's, you know, saying this to other businesses and also um, – I think also in a big way, uh, all Apple employees everywhere to say, you know, look – if you feel like you're in a position where you know you can't uh, work for someplace or you can't go to a business or whatever, uh, you know, come to Apple either you know mm-hmm. as a customer, as an employee, as something, because this is our stand and we're putting a flag in the ground right now, and this is what we believe. And I think that's hopefully you know giving cover to a lot of other businesses who may be silent, but they can say, oh well, you know, Apple said something really good. We're going to stick with that. Well, Susie, you work for a giant corporation known as IDG, and um, and I assume between human resources training and other things that you've got, and you're in California, which has a lot of strong protections uh, for workers and anti-discrimination protections, I would wonder, as someone who works at a corporation who has employees and, and um, who directs people, um, would you feel uncomfortable in terms of upholding your responsibilities working in the company even, uh, you know, sending someone to Indiana without knowing anything about them or trying to peer into their private life, like whether you would be concerned that you might violate corporate policy by putting somebody in a position where you were concerned they'd be discriminated against on, on business travel. Um, wow. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so that's a big one. Sorry. None of Joe and I don't work for companies. We don't know anything about this. <laughs> I mean, it would. So I only manage a couple of people, and if so, so it would really depend on why the person was going to Indiana and what you know how the first person felt about going to Indiana. But yeah, I wouldn't want to like send somebody somewhere where they might be discriminated against. Um, we saw some of this when. Uh, when the Russia had the Olympics and they were like, okay, well, is it okay for gay athletes to participate in the Olympics now? Because, you know, that's illegal in Russia and what's going to happen? So, so I don't think the Indiana laws is, is, you know, goes quite as far as, uh, (laughs) as the policies over in Russia. But yeah, you have to, you have to think about that because your, your responsibility is to your people 
And, you know, there's there's a lot of places that business can be done and it doesn't have to be in Indiana. I mean, we've seen the NCAA is talking about moving the Final Four and they're headquartered in Indiana. Um, Angie's List canceled a $40 million expansion plan. Um, Mark Beninoff of Salesforce has said that he is pulling out of a big convention, I think, in Indiana. And so so it's it's been really heartening to see people say, okay, discrimination is bad for business and we're not just going to do this as a political thing. Like we're looking out for our employees and our customers and we just don't want to draw those lines between, you know, and, and say that it's that it's okay. So, right, no, so yeah, no, it would depend. It would really depend on the situation. But yeah, I, you know, I'm, I, I can't get behind that. Well, I, I don't think anyone should be discriminated against. And I'd argue outside of like the personal realm and like my own feelings about the issue and so forth. Because, you know, I am a progressive and I wear it on my sleeve. But even beyond that, I think that business case is just that discrimination is anti-business mm-hmm. in 2015. That's a that's a huge Absolutely. thing. That's why Arizona didn't pass its law. Its governor vetoed it. And I think, you know, it, your own beliefs about what constitute discrimination are, are totally your own. And no one should... I don't know. I shouldn't say you shouldn't shame people for it. But, you know, that's, that's a personal realm thing. That's a different kind of discussion. But I think when it comes down to it, it seems like Tim Cook is saying this is, you know, well, he has specific opinions, right, about himself and about um, the world around him. But it comes down to a business thing. Like you're not going to put people in a position in in a commercial setting um, as an employer or or want to put other people in a position where they're they're concerned. Well, let's talk about something that's less fraught because I think there is something. And, and, and talking about Jay-Z and Beyonce is always great. Yes. Of course. They're very exciting. I think you guys are still, your ears are ringing from the concert they did in San Francisco last year, uh, judging by the reports of the noise level. From, I could hear from it from my apartment, which is like four miles away from, oh from the venue. So <laughs> It was fascinating watching Twitter from Seattle. I was, I was joking. I'm in Seattle and I can hear the con- concert, but people are like, I've never heard a single, was it at, at the ballpark, right? And yeah. Yes. Which is only like, a couple like, blocks from our office. Mm-hmm. Oh, geez. And they're like, I've never heard a sound from the ballpark and I live right like four miles away. Yeah. Or I'm, you know, 200 blocks away. Uh, so they're trying to make another big noise, which is with the launch of Tidal, is that Jay-Z and, a con- and Beyonce and a, a group of other artists uh, bought an existing music service, rebranded it, and they're going to release a two-tiered paid only, no freemium uh, service. So Susie and Leah, you probably know a lot more music, uh, more, more about music uh, streaming than, uh, than I do. What's, what's the score with uh, Tidal? Does it have a potential to offer something new? So the way that they're trying to differentiate it is with um, some exclusive content. So like if you like Taylor Swift, her latest album, she's been very protective of it. And I can't stream it on RDO, so I still haven't listened to it yet. It's not on Spotify, um, but I guess it's going to be on this Jay-Z service title. And so so that they're... You know, he's got connections and and that's one angle they're working is you're going to have music here that you don't have anywhere else. But it's not like you can't get that music anywhere else. Like you could just go buy it. There's not that many albums that come out where everyone's talking about it and you have to hear it. Like that happens once a year, twice a year at most. So I don't think that's a reason enough to switch. The other thing that they're kind of hanging their hat on is sound quality. And they're saying that these tracks are a higher fidelity and you're going to get closer to the artists and the producers' true intention and all that audiophile kind of stuff. But the jury's still out on whether that really makes a difference to most people. Um, you know, you can say like higher quality, that's great. But when you really slap headphones on people, it's hard for them to tell the difference. Um uh, I think David Pogue did a listening test when the Pono player came out, Neil Young's high fidelity player, and a lot of people were completely guessing wrong and saying that regular tracks purchased from iTunes that they th- thought those sounded more higher fidelity on good headphones. And you know, I I don't listen with good headphones a lot of the times. We're we're I'm on the bus with my earphones. So for me, it's about having all the music in as many places as possible for $10. So a month. And you can get audio for half that if you only want to listen on the Mac, but if you want Mac and stream um sorry, Mac and mobile it's $10. But Tidal is trying to do like double that. And they're they're also saying that like this supports the artists and and the artists aren't making enough money from the the deals that the labels have cut with Spotify and RDO. That's not really super compelling to a lot of people. You're like, oh, <laughs> Madonna doesn't have enough money. So like, yeah, because the artists he had at the press conference were like Madonna and Rihanna and Dead Mouse and 
Daft Punk and like big artists that you know, it's hard to you know think that they're they're like starving in their caves. So so yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it's this is going to be enough to to make a big mark. Um, I think if I think they're really going to be hinging on that exclusive content. I could see up front for them to try to get, you know, as many users and people to sign up for their um, for the service as possible. I could totally see, you know, Beyonce putting out like a couple of exclusive tracks for title just to see a wave of of subscribers to kind of get people on there. Um, but for them to kind of keep the public's interest, they're going to have to have a lot of exclusive content. And Susie's right. Like eventually that content won't be exclusive and you'll be able to get it somewhere else. And someone will find a way to, you know, rip the file off of there and put it on YouTube. So it'll, it'll get out there anyways. Um, And it's also interesting that the focus, I read some piece on Gawker where it was like, once again, it's the same main big group of artists that are like, pushing this service forward. It's not really doing anything for um, discovery and new artists. So what's the what's the collection going to look like on Tidal? Um, and will it kind of be enough to pull people away from Spotify? So I don't know. Well, it seems like artists have been trying that, uh, I- that issuing albums at straight, like dropping them at weird times mm-hmm. suddenly, like Beyonce did. And you're like, Boom, here's an album. And this seems like a service that would benefit from that. But those are specific events unless they, I don't know, unless they try to schedule that more, make that a regular thing that like many of the artists participating are going to drop the stuff there. It's not going to wind up on Spotify at all, uh, like with Taylor Swift. And um, maybe that becomes a compelling thing if they have enough artists participating in that way, but that all seems, I mean, it's focusing interest. It's that, um, the, the long tail and big head thing, right? Is that the, the big head is that's where most of the money in sales are. The long tail works for aggregators is if you have, uh, this is the thing that came up with Amazon. It comes up with Spotify and, and so forth. Although Spotify is even worse because of the pay rate, but having, you know, selling one copy of a million different books does not much benefit each author because those authors get a tiny amount of money. It benefits Amazon. It probably benefits publishers who have thousands of titles each. And the same thing here. It feels like the big artists will benefit uh, the most, of course, as they often do. But is there enough in that long tail of what they're doing to bring subscribers into this service versus the others? I hate to sound overly cynical, but I also wonder if some of this is, um, you know, Here's a new service, and we're gonna we're gonna get it up and running. And hey, Apple, do you want to buy this service? Maybe fold it <laughs> yeah. into Beats. They, you know, Apple has a lot of money. They spend a lot of money for Beats, and and uh, you know, this could definitely be something where they say, hey, we've got this amazing content, and you can have it with whatever Apple's you know future streaming thing that they're working on. And look, it's all ready to go. All you have to do is just you know pony up maybe a billion dollars. That's it. It's nothing for you guys, really. Just you know, po- pocket change, and then everybody is happy and moves along. I know that's really cynical, but again, you know, this is it's kind of an internet startup, and a lot of internet startups that's that's their end game. It's not a bad strategy. Uh, all I know is that uh, this is a call forward to our book discussion that's coming up is that Apple would never buy a service from Neil Young. Uh, <laughs> we'll, get, we'll get back to that in a minute. So thanks this week to High Five, which is uh, helping to bring you the Macworld podcast. So High Five is all about the fact that people used to work in the same office, but today people work from all over the place. And, and I can see that working with Macworld, which has uh, correspondents and people and uh, the whole group at IDG all over the place. And it, bringing people together is an important thing for any group that's working you know, in a virtual office. What they offer at High Five is easy to use video and web conferencing you're actually going to enjoy using. They set up a conference room for you with multiple video cameras. What High Five does is they have a seamlessly integrated set of hardware and cloud software. So you can work in any way you want to. You can have productive meetings with HD video with up to eight participants. You can start an HD video meeting from your computer or from a mobile device. There's no remote to lose or other information or details you need. 
It's a simple click from your computer or a swipe of your phone. You can move video calls from your personal device to a conference room TV. So what you start with is an in-room device. It costs about $800 to set up a conference room. It's a one-time only fee, and High 5 says this is about 120th of the cost of a traditional video provider. There's no maintenance fees or monthly overhead. It's yours to use. The standard software is free for every employee, so you're not paying monthly fees for them. This lets everyone participate in video conferencing at very high quality, and it's just, it bypasses all the complexity of setting up other systems and all the ongoing cost. If you'd like to request a free 30-day trial that includes five in-room devices and unlimited software for your employees, we've got a special offer if you go to highfive.com slash Macworld. That's highfive, H-I-G-H-F-I-V-E dot com slash Macworld, and you can request a free trial and start meeting face-to-face with High Five. So thanks to High Five for helping to bring Macworld podcast to you this week. And now on to the book. So a new biography, because uh, heaven knows there are not enough biographies of Steve Jobs in the world. Uh, we, we, I haven't been able to Steve make who? my, my, the fort <laughs> in my living room out of books yet. So I need more biographies about him. Uh, this is uh, becoming Steve Jobs: the evolution of a reckless upstart into a visionary leader. And the title tells you you don't need to read the book now because the title tells you what it's about. Uh, by Brett Schlender and Rick uh, Tetzley. And uh, Brent was a longtime uh, Fortune reporter, and uh, Rick is the executive editor of Fast Company. And it's told uh, as a first-person story. Uh, from Brent's point of view, because uh, Brent has met uh, Steve Jobs, he counts maybe about 150 times over his reporting career. And in fact, there's a you know little poignant and interesting note in the book about where he missed seeing him uh, when Jobs was extremely ill because he turned him down, essentially sort of decided not to get together with him. Um, and, and I think Brent is very realistic about their relationship, that it was driven by what Jobs needed from him. It wasn't a friendship per se, but it was certainly friendly. Um, this book was, I think the... There's a bunch of things about the book that are interesting, uh, and, and maybe we'll start with the fact that Apple essentially endorsed it after it came out. They didn't have right of refusal or, or whatever, but I think once it was underway, they made top executives, including Tim Cook, available for the book, which is rare, um, almost unheard of. Uh, and then once it came out, they all said very po- – or even before it came out, very positive things about it being a you know fair picture. So uh, – uh, just to start with, I know uh, Leah and Susie, you've read about half the book because it's a slog. <laughs> it just came out last week. <laughs> Jeff and I have read the whole thing, and we'll talk about different aspects of it. And Leah, you were just at South by Southwest, and you saw what was the film that you saw there about Steve Jobs as well? It was called Steve Jobs, The Man in the Machine. It was directed by Alex Gibney, who um, just put out another documentary that Susie's watching about Scientology on HBO. And um, the Steve Jobs documentary was actually um, produced by CNN and kind of funded, right, Susie, by people at behind Gawker. Yeah, one of the producers was uh, Gabby Derbyshire, I think. I'm really sorry if I'm messing oh, up this name. And yes. uh, she uh, was uh, one of the lead counsel at Gawker during the whole iPhone 4 debacle mm-hmm. when Gizmodo right. got its hands on a lost iPhone 4 and reported it and then Apple wanted it back and they, they kind of said, okay, but we have demands. And that whole kerfluffle, Jason Chen's door got kicked in. Um, that's featured prominently in this thing, right? It is. Uh, they spend a good chunk of time interviewing people um, that were with Gizmodo at the time and kind of hearing their story about about that whole debacle, um, which was interesting. Um, but we probably didn't learn And that's when people that walked out know. of the screening. That's when reportedly Apple execs walked out of, of the screening that were actually there. And after the documentary um, came out, Eddie Q went on Twitter and just bashed it and said it was really mean-spirited, which it was. It, it skewed. It was very negative about jobs and they kind of focused on um some of the harsher you know more some of the the not so nice pretty things um that jobs did but they didn't really try to even round it out a little bit so anyways eddie q came out and said it was mean-spirited they got the story wrong and it was hard for him to watch something so negative about his friend and then he said Becoming Steve Jobs is the part that 
gets the story right. So he bashed the documentary and then praised um, this biography before it even came out. So that kind of set the tone for how Apple feels. Yeah, and they put a big sample of this book on iBooks Mm -hmm. before it came out. So John Gruber interviewed the authors at the Apple Store in uh, New York, and um, it's they're selling it in the Apple stores, I believe, as well. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, it's um, this reminds me, uh, uh, Leah, the story you're telling reminds me of a Beatles movie I saw decades ago. And I'm watching this movie on a thing we used to call television, where you actually had to watch <laughs> it when it was being broadcast. And I'm watching it, and um, and it's this interesting story about their early life in Liverpool and getting together and going to Berlin. And then it comes to this point where there's this weird part of the film, and I know the movie's almost over, and they say, Brian, we have to. This is you know Brian Epstein, their long-time manager, Brian. Uh, uh, Pete has to go. Yes, he has to go. We must fire him. Yes, yes. And then there's this bit where they fire Pete Best and then Ringo, there's a strange scene in nightclub where Ringo plays his first uh, gig with them and everyone at the, the end of it is shouting, yay, Ringo. And then the credits roll and I was thinking, what is this about? And in the credits... Thanks to our advisor, Pete Best. So (laughs) I have a little bit of that sense when you describe this film that perhaps there are people who needed to get an axe to grind, however reasonable the axe was uh, to happen. Well, so it's an interesting part. I think let's, um, we can talk about, we'll all talk about the first half of the book and then we'll we'll talk about our general experiences here as well. But I feel like uh, this book had a real um, agenda coming from business reporters who had uh, followed Apple very closely. And and I wonder, um, Susie, having read as much of the book as you had, does it feel uh, accurate and on point to you in terms of um, the history that you know and that you experienced uh, covering uh, Apple and working with Apple products during the times that, uh, that overlap? I think it does. I think this book puts the Apple story and the Steve Jobs story in better context than the Isaacson book did. You get a sense that the authors really understand technology and the PC revolution and you know they they can kind of look at what happened and sort of explain, okay, well this was the climate at the time and then here's how you know, here's the the early mistakes that he made were mostly with, you know, management and, and immaturity, really. And then how he changed as the the computing world was changing and, you know, made some dumb decisions, made some smart decisions, finally found some mentors who could really help him. So but I I, I definitely got that the, the authors knew what they were talking about and understood the whole arc of Silicon Valley and didn't just focus on on one man and one company. So that was kind of nice. I came across, uh, I, came, I came away from it very jealous of uh, Brent Schlender's um, access. Yeah. Like the scene where he says, oh yeah, and then I brought my daughters over and we saw Toy Story before it came out. I was just oh like, God. oh man, you're but so That's lucky. a typical Steve Jobs thing where he said no one else has seen this. It turns out tons of other people. He <laughs> shown it to everybody but he told like Larry Brent Ellison no one did. said he had to sit there at 11 times yeah. so. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's I think there's a good um, self-awareness in the book that the that Brent is um, you know aware that he's being manipulated that jobs mm-hmm. does everything in service but I thought you know one of the things I'd ask you about Lee I'm curious how, how you react to this too that I felt like this was a business book that tried to insert a lot of um, personal detail about Jobs rather than a biography of Jobs. It just sort of ho- followed him from company to company yes. as opposed to trying to get us real insight into who he was as a as a fully realized human being. It, his whole identity told through this book is it's all just him attached to his companies and how he has grown and developed alongside, you know, the companies that he is is working with um so i don't know how i i keep like waiting for for that to change in the second half um but we do i i don't get the sense that um i i do feel like there is a lot of steve in this book though even though it is kind of told through what's going on with apple and then at next in pixar and then back at apple you can kind of get a sense of of his arc and how these business decisions have kind of changed him in a way, how he's grown from things. So I don't feel like it's super removed, um, but the business side and the personal side are definitely presented together. I also wonder about all your reactions about um – some of the critique of the book, which I found bizarre as I started reading it, I was worried it was going to be a hagiography. You know, I mean, Walter Isaacson's book, which I uh, 
we should actually we should talk about the other bios too if any of us have read them. I did not read Walter Isaacson's book. I read so many excerpts. I think I've read 40% of the book because mm -hmm. so many were published. And I've read interviews with him and discussions and so forth. And I ultimately thought, I don't need to spend my time reading this because it sounds like a rehash of all of Jobs, you know, the greatest hits of Jobs, a little bit of new information, but nothing that would give me more insight either into him as a human being or into his how he got the company where it was. And I lived through a lot of that history. I knew people who worked at Apple uh, during certain stages. So I didn't feel like I wanted to hear those stories again. But the critique this book got uh, just as it came out was, you know, it just, it's uh, Apple's endorsed it. It's just a whitewash of everything. And I wonder how all of you feel about, uh, you know, whether you've read all or part of it is whether you're, you're, you had that reaction. Because I mean, I'll tell you, mine was certainly, the first half of the book is all like a litany of Jobs' personal failures and some a small number of, of big successes and mostly kind of uh, failures. Did you feel, um, was that balanced for you or was it, was it, you know, negative, positive? It felt pretty balanced to me. Um, it, I actually sort of expected it to be a little more, uh, more positive, more sort of rah-rah Steve Jobs based on a lot of the stuff leading up to it. Um, and so I, I'm glad that it was very much a, you know, yeah, Steve could be a real jerk. And, you know, there were times that he did some things that were just not good. And, and th those are detailed. Um, I think the real strength of the book is is getting that sense of who he was, not just when he was in front of a crowd or in front of a, a, a boardroom or something, but, you know, just like dealing with people and, and negotiating things and, uh, you know, having him react to things personally that you don't really see very much it and it, I think you don't read about very much because it doesn't really fit the the, the caricature um, and I think like have, having read the whole thing it makes me think that um, all of you know Apple's uh, support and and enthusiasm for it probably came really toward the end and um, we can go into that a little bit toward mm -hmm. the end. I'm a little surprised that, that there's not more of Tim Cook uh, throughout the book. And I, I think basically that's, that's sort of a, a matter of um, you know, production and, and construction of the book. But um, I think like there, there was a tipping point at some point where somebody at Apple had access to this and said, oh, you know what? This is more of the Steve that we knew and let's you know kind of get behind this and and make ourselves available more than just you know Apple's typical stance of we're not going to talk to anybody or we're not going to you know, acknowledge any you know bad stuff. Well, I thought it was fair in terms of showing his self-destructive behavior really clearly, like how he kept you know cutting himself off at the knees, while also especially in the early days showing how he. I mean, God, so a lot of people take risks. A lot of people have insights about the future. I mean, the common story here in Seattle is Paul Allen was seen as kind of an idiot for most of the 90s, and then he turned into magically into a brilliant person. It wasn't. He was about 10 years ahead of the market for a long time. He invested in satellite television before it was profitable, in AOL before, you know, and then got out of it and made a fortune from getting out of it before it collapsed. Like, uh, like there's a litany of things in the 90s that seemed like bad ideas, all of which he made money off. And, and I think Jobs was um, both luckier and less lucky is that he was almost always correct about the future or he made the future. And there's probably 10,000 guys like him who were equally as brash and arrogant and didn't have the follow through or they bet slightly wrong. I mean, in the universe we're in, the decision paths all went towards Jobs' decisions, right? Like buying Pixar and pouring his entire fortune, essentially almost going bankrupt in the process. Like he was running out of money. Uh, that was a crazy idea. And it's only the fact that they were able to produce Toy Story that, you know, made that into a success story and led to everything else. But um, Susie, I thought I'd ask you as a longtime Apple, a writer about Apple things, uh, outside of the book, do you think Steve Jobs changed from old to new? And, and if so, does it matter to how we cover Apple or what Apple is as a company? Is it really a personal thing? Does it play into this sort of professional story? I mean, and, and some of it's in the book, I know, and some of it just your observation of him. 
I think the book wants you to think that he changed because the book does a really good job of linking like so the thesis is kind of, you know, he's part genius and part asshole. And the book is trying to show you that all the mean things that he did kind of really cut himself off at the knees, like you said, and contributed to, you know, most of his professional failures. Um, and then, you know, we all kind of know how the story of Apple is going now. Like, you know, came back, turned everything around, amazing products. So I think they kind of want you to think like, okay, he learned from all this and he totally changed. And that's why, it, you know, his, his second act at Apple was such a huge success. But, um, but yeah, the, you found a, a, a column at Slate by Dan Gilmore, who's, kind of saying, okay, like he did a lot of, you know, mean things at the end too. And those are sort of glossed over. So uh, yeah, I don't know if, yeah. Does it matter for us? Like, I mean, you know, he's passed away. Mm -hmm. It's sort of a legacy issue and we're covering the Apple today. And I think like, you know, I've, I sort of shy away from the biographies of business people because they're usually not very interesting um, unless they're very interesting people. You know, I'd rather read a biography of Albert Schweitzer than, you know, Steve Jobs at that level. Um, But, but I think Jobs has had such a huge impact, you know, through product. It's such a weird thing how many people's lives he's he's changed. And I just wonder if how much you how much you personally care about what he was like as a person, how much, you know, how he changed affected the outcome, like affected what Apple became. Or or again, if he I mean, as you say, you know, did he change did he really change or did he just become a more effective manager, let's say? I think he definitely became a more effective manager. Um, I don't know if if it really matter if it really matters for Apple's story. Um, I think that now Apple is like so he had a he was very loyal to to the good people and so so if if Apple you know needs to succeed they have to keep really really good people around and I think that um, yeah he learned he learned a lot about managing so but now when you're covering Apple um, you know Tim Cook's been in charge for a while he's doing great the stock is up everything's going awesome they're record-setting revenues and he's actually you know in a lot of ways more successful than Steve Jobs was but you still sort of get every time you know something happens like oh this wouldn't happen if Steve Jobs was still around so i think this book can kind of show like you know he he didn't he didn't save apple all by himself and and it, it can kind of throw some cold water on that whole you know, Apple's doomed without Steve thing, which is already a, a story that's kind of, you know, getting old. And I don't hear it, you know, parroted so much anymore. But for the first couple of years after he passed away, it was just like, oh, well, here we go again. Like, there's no way Apple can, can succeed without Steve Jobs. So I think this book shows that that that, that isn't really true. It feels like a bit it's describing, in the latter half of the book, particularly on the business side, it describes how he built the Steve Jobs machine. I mean, Apple University and his management team and either pushing people out like, um, uh, you know, John Rubenstein, Ruby, uh, or I mean, sort of sidelining them, even though they were critical to Apple's resurgence, like when people had done enough that he felt they weren't contributing in the way he needed to anymore. Um, and, you know, then we know that Tim Cook has continued that, that some people were forced out or, or left of their own volition. And it feels like they made a uh, Steve, like, like Apple is an artificial intelligence at the management top. It's the Steve Jobs brain. <laughs> he admired the brain trust developed at, at Pixar that's made it possible for them to essentially have had only successes, which is unheard of in terms, you know, financially, uh, financial successes with every movie that's come out. And that's insane. And so the brain trust at Apple is, it's Steve Jobs' brain. They, they preserved his brain in the form of a, like, um, uh, like management structure and training. And um, I, I wonder, I don't, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. So far, it's continued to be good. But you also think eventually the company has to create its own mold for the future and it can't rely on even his, you know, way of breaking out of boxes. Yeah, because he did, you know, change his mind and he did evolve. So if, you know, you're just kind of going back to that playbook over and over again, that book isn't going to change. So, so yeah, they need to keep looking forward, which I, I think they're doing okay. <laughs> hey, so Leah, did you find anything uh, that surprised you that you said, oh, this suddenly gives me new insight into either jobs or Apple or a situation I didn't understand? I mean, beyond some of the like anecdotes, but like, did you get new insight from what you read? I didn't know a lot about um, Next and its mission. So seeing how he was trying to go after 
um, universities and research heavy machines um, and competing with some of the other companies in that space. Um, that was really interesting. Um, but the parts that I liked reading about the most, were, it was all the the Pixar stuff um, and seeing how, even though this was a company that he bought and was invested in, he kind of let, he left management to to do its own thing, which is very unlike the the Steve Jobs that, you know, I had read about and known about through other, other outlets. He kind of let them, when it came to the storyline and making their films and making their shorts and working on the software and everything, he left that all to John Lasseter and Ed Catmull. And then when it came to making the deals with Disney and actually getting it off the ground, that's where Steve stepped in to kind of use his um, use his his chops to to make it happen that way. So to kind of see how these other big wigs would tell Steve, like, nope, we're going to do it our way, even though you kind of want to come in and do what you can. And Steve respected that and was like, okay, I'll... I'll work on the business side. You tackle this. And the company became really successful, you know, because of that strategy. Um, it was interesting to to learn more about that and see how Steve kind of took that knowledge um, and moved forward with, forward with it when he went back to Apple. I mean, he still was a micromanager and everything, but he seemed to have more trust in in his in his top exec team after that. So. Yeah, it seems like he was able to. I mean, that's. It feels like he learned from Ed Catmull, who is an interesting, was sort of a reluctant manager, and then became one. Is an absolutely brilliant person. I'll we'll talk in a moment about some of the things that um, that mediate how I feel about Ed Catmull mm-hmm. now. But uh, Creativity Inc. Overcoming the unseen forces that stand in the way of true inspiration is Catmull's book uh, that came out, I think, in 2013. Maybe it's not, not too long ago. Um, about sort of how it, it's really a management book. It's like how he evolved as a manager and how they broke through conceptual problems in trying to replicate success and it feel and some of that comes through in this book too I think the this uh, this new bio becoming Steve Jobs actually if you read it as a business book the lesson is to figure out how to break down the obstacles to achieving exactly what you want to um, although the financials are never really discussed there's a lot of numbers in this book but not a lot of uh, you know insight into how you actually can charge premium prices for things, uh, which which is kind of <laughs> Apple's success is high margins. Uh, but let's talk, let's talk about some of the problematic stuff because, uh, I mean, we talked about a bit of it is, you know, the arc of the book. So, I mean, very briefly, and people will, will enjoy this as they read it too, is, um, you know, the book goes through, it kind of glosses over his early years, you know, kind of a quick gloss. And they, he and Meets Was, they found Apple. Uh, then, um, you know, he moves on to Lisa, like Apple III, which I, I use an Apple III. I'm that old. Uh, there was a computer store in Eugene, Oregon, where I grew up, and they got an Apple III. And what they told me was sort of a piece of junk. You know, they, and they was like, really? Because they had all these Apple IIs. We love the Apple II. And they're like, yeah, there's a solder bridge that fails, and they're expensive. And so I played with one of the things, but it was sort of a monstrosity. And so Apple III was a huge, was a production failure because Jobs insisted on things that weren't necessary. Lisa didn't sell that well and had issues. Um, then he you know, was, he got the Mac off the ground, which was a giant success, but not initially because of, again, a lot of the things that he insisted on that weren't relevant. Then, you know, he, he goes on, he's puttering around, he gets kicked out. Um, Jason Snell, our good friend Jason Snell, uh, has raised the objection, as I've heard from other people, that essentially the John Scully years were erased in this book. Well, Steve left, and then this soda water guy was in charge for a while. Then Steve came back, and and uh, you know it was all good. It's like, well, John Scully was actually kind of important to Apple's history, but the camera moves away from Apple and follows Steve, and we sort of forget that there was a decade of you know Scully did a lot of actually important and good foundational work, even uh, you know even if it didn't if he doesn't have a long tenure there. Um, That's actually one of the things that, that I found uh, sort of interesting and sometimes frustrating because uh, you're reading in, you know, I mean, this is this is a book about Steve Jobs. So, you know, on one hand, you're like, okay, like you wouldn't really expect a whole lot of detail about what was happening at Apple while while Scully was there. But at the same time, because Jobs and Apple and, and Pixar and Next are so intertwined, um, it ends up being kind of a, a history of those companies. And so um, I, I definitely see where where Jason is going there because it's it's like like suddenly 
I wanted to know more about what happened at Apple or, you know, things that I knew of that happened at the time that weren't mentioned. And I'm like, look, how, why aren't they mentioning this? And then having to remember, oh, because Steve wasn't directly involved or, um, you know, like at, toward the end, they talk about a lot of the the um, uh, executives like, like Rubenstein and uh, who ended up leaving. Uh, and then they didn't mention um, uh, Scott uh, Forstall. You know, which I thought was like this, you know, very interesting, you know, dramatic departure. Then I was like, oh, that's right. Well, that was after Jobs. And so um, it's just like when you said that that this was a, a business book, I actually sort of forgot that this might be a business book because it, it really is um, like, like the, the story of rather than how to, you know, take the knowledge gleaned from all of these things. You know what I mean? It's a hybrid, right? It's a biography, but it's a business book. But it's a so you follow you're, the camera's always following Steve Jobs. There's very little, you know, off camera him uh, from a, you know if you're looking at like a movie. But there's a lot of stuff related to what he did and does that probably would have been better included. Well, you know, so, so we don't take uh, we don't want to take as much time as reading the book to talk about the book. But um, <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I will point out, MacWorld is intercapped in the book. Yes. Yes. Every single yep. time on her. Acceptable. And, you know, that there have been, uh, I think, good critiques that uh, the Walter Isaacson book was widely criticized for having technical errors and narrative problems. Like there were a lot of factual things that was seen as being rushed out to capitalize on, you know, being an obituary. Um, and this book uh, took a lot more time. And I am surprised at how many errors there are. Uh, the the uh, captions, particularly of photos, have a number of errors. There's typos. You know, OS 10 has no space between OS and 10. I mean, little things that proofreading would catch. There's there, no reason not to. There some, were a couple of years that were mixed up. Like, I, they were like, oh, somebody came on in 1987. I was like, we are just talking about 1996. I don't think that's exactly. I had to, like, read over that a couple of times um, and double check. And it's like, nope, they did not mean that year at all. <laughs> yeah, it felt a little sloppy mm -hmm. in those regards when it when it shouldn't have been because you just hire a researcher and, um, you know, that person puts in 40 or 50 hours and they check all the dates. And, and that probably happened. So something went wrong there because I just keep finding things. The one thing I was mistaken about, I thought that Clippy uh, was referred to as Clippit incorrectly. Clippit is actually the correct name of the Microsoft product. Clippy is an informal name for it. So Really? Yeah, because yeah, so that, that jumped out too. It's like Clippit? Clip, it's what it's called. Ed Bott, uh, uh, our law, uh, good friend of a uh, good friend, uh, pointed out to me on Twitter. He's like, "Nope, it's Clip," and he has chapter and verse. And I said, "But Wikipedia says." He said, "Wikipedia is wrong," and I'm gonna go fix it because he has the documentation. <laughs> so that was actually correct. But um, so you know, we, let's get towards the the end of the book. I think the the latter half of the book, and this is something, uh, Leah and Susie, you don't have to read because you've lived through it and you know the detail uh, too. It's much. I think it's a much better known era because we don't find out as much about. Jobs personally. Um, one reason is one of the authors. I mean, the the first person narrator of the book, uh, Brent um, had uh, had a heart valve replacement at one point. He got an uh, complicated infection. He was in the hospital for weeks uh, during which uh, Jobs came and visited him. Which I was I was quite surprised by that. That was actually. Uh, in terms of showing Jobs' humanity to other people, um, there are definitely a lot of things in this book I'd never heard he'd done before, which was great. But that just like going to visit a reporter in the hospital, who I mean, you've known for a long time, I actually thought that was pretty touching. Like that was uh, that was sort of interesting. But um, but after that, the author Slender complains that Jobs basically never had time for him anymore. You know, for the next several years, which led to him essentially turning down a chance to to talk and walk with, with Steve at the end of his life, um, you know, making half-hearted effort to schedule and, and being angry about it. Um, but uh, I think that's where the book suffers because from that point on, we don't get much insight about jobs that's not um, public or maybe, I don't want to say whitewashed, but that view comes from people like Tim Cook or Eddie Q or other people who are quoted from Inside Apple. And it lacks that little bit of, you know, I think Brent had a lot more insight when... Jobs needed him more, and you got a lot more of the first-person view that was really useful um, beyond the research. So 
this last part of the book, it, you know, there's a lot of stuff. And in Dan Gilmore's column, as you mentioned, Susie, he lists a ton of stuff that the book, you know, there's a chapter kind of about warts at the end. But, you know, if Steve Jobs changed so much, if he was such a different person, then, you know, why did he engage in the stock backdating? Why did he mm-hmm. throw Nancy Heinen and Fred Anderson under the mm-hmm. bus? And Fred Anderson is quoted throughout the book and seems like a really sweet guy. He, he and his wife were Mac lovers. That's why they relocated across country for him to take the job as a CFO and, you know, rescue, help rescue a company without Fred. Yeah, in 1996, no I think, in like the darkest hour. Yeah, without Fred, there'd be no Apple today. Yeah. It's absolutely clear that that bringing in somebody with that, that senior and that credible is how they got banks to issue forbearance and, and it, without him. And so you don't really see, like, I think the thing that, the point that's made is that Steve is willing to throw people under the bus even in that latter stage. And when people left, when they were outside of his field of vision, they didn't exist anymore. Does, does that ring true to you? Because I feel like that's that's an insight that I don't know if the book made clearly enough, but like Avi and uh, Ruby, um, they go off to do their own thing because they've been sidelined. He's basically made them useless inside the company. And so they leave and then he's mad at them. That That seems true. And I don't know that the book, I, I don't know where that fits in the book's thesis that he changed so much. Well, I would say that that it, it it helps in the sense that that you're getting a a more well-rounded picture of Steve Jobs. Um, one of the things that I uh, didn't like about that was that having a chapter at the end that was like, oh, and remember, remember, he can still be kind of a jerk, and here are some examples <laughs> of it. It it, I mean, my initial thought was, uh, you know, this was probably added late in the game because someone probably read it and said, boy, you really. You're really kind of you know playing up this you know great Saint Steve Jobs thing, um, and it it felt like a lot of that stuff would have been better suited, uh, you know, more around the timing of, of when things happened, or you know, just sort of more throughout the book, so that you you got that richer picture as you're going, rather than oh right, and this guy that we've been talking about and how he's changed and he's a much better person, um, which you know I. I believe that in many ways he was a much better person, but he was still Steve Jobs. And then to just sort of dump it all at the end, it was like, oh, yeah, right. Well, he was also a jerk. So we've got that covered. Move on to the next thing. <laughs> yeah, it was like a list of – it was a list of, uh, of times that Steve was – I mean, it was, yeah, it was kind of this list, but I thought it didn't – it didn't have context because you're right. It did feel like it was thrown in. It's like, okay, here's everything he did wrong in the last, you know, eight or ten years – or, you know, ten years. Um, some of them were moral. Some were legal. Some were just, you know, being a jerk. And, and But I, I think the, the primary thing to me is like from a – from the perspective of it being a, if you read it as a business book is that he did become a better manager. I'm not sure he became a better, well-rounded person. He certainly, um, and I don't, again, I don't know if that matters except to his family and his friends that that was the case. He definitely figured out how to delegate. He didn't figure out how to get rid of petty grudges and he didn't figure out how to act in the interests of his employees. And, and I want to talk about the anti-poaching agreement briefly because it brings up, um, I think it was glossed over. It's mentioned, you know, there's a couple pages about it and so forth. Um, but I think it brings up two things. One is, uh, you know, so the anti-poaching uh, um, agreement was between Apple and a bunch of other companies and also was duplicated by uh, animation companies like Pixar. And there's tons of documentation. This is, uh, there's a, you know, uh, there was a settlement uh, proposed and then the judge rejected it as being too small because... Tens of billions of dollars potentially were stolen from employees through, uh, you know, essentially wage fixing and and preventing uh, poaching, uh, preventing migration of jobs. Uh, And uh, this is where I have less respect for Ed Catmull because he's extensively quoted in email and then in a deposition. Essentially, and Tim Cook echoes the same thing. The quotes in this book, I don't think I've seen Tim Cook say elsewhere, they keep saying it's not about money. It wasn't about money. It was about keeping a team together. Ed Catmull, Catmull says, well, we didn't want Northern California wages to go up so high that basically we destroy the industry and no one would have work up here. It would all go to other countries. And Tim Cook said, we just, we were so focused on keeping the team together. This would be a distraction. You know, my reaction is no, you're stealing money out of people's pockets. This is illegal. It's, um, you know, clearly illegal. Any general counsel would tell you it's illegal. Any employer, you know, labor lawyer, the book hedges like, well, it may or may not. I'm like, there's no doubt. Um, and especially based on the fact they were going to settle for a large amount of money, but not large enough. For the judge, um, it seems to undermine some of uh, some of the contentions that you know Steve uh, was good at rewarding people at the higher levels and not necessarily acting in the best interests of everyone in the company. 
Oh, I'll let that sit there. Stand there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think some of that is is also that that sense of, um, and yeah, I think this comes through in the book a little bit. That that sense of you know, if you were smart and if you were uh, assertive, then Steve Jobs respected you, and so. For you to be in Steve Jobs' inner circle or the you know the the top level of of Apple, uh, you know you had to be smart, you had to be assertive, and so I think it it kind of gives you a peek into that that sense of you know he he was surrounded by the smart assertive people, and everyone else were you know just sort of like falling by the wayside or bozos or really not worth. As much consideration, they were they were the the ants that sort of you know made everything else happen. And although you know, I I still also believe that that uh, Jobs and Tim Cook, you know, were speaking true when they talk about how important you know the the employees are and the families are sort of as a as a a large um, organization as a large entity. When it comes to specific things like that, like wages and stuff, he he probably had like very little patience for anything beyond like maybe two or three <laughs> layers of, of of people away from him. And so, you know, whether uh, that means that a uh, you know a, a programmer can't get a better wage somewhere else, well, you know, like that that's just not even in his in his his peripheral vision. It's disloyal if you leave the company. So. You know, why, why should I let you make it easy for you to do it? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and, and the, the fact that they were colluding with other companies, big companies, to make this happen. And, and you know, other, you know, big, smart, powerful people who were like, well, yes, of course we want to keep all of our people and, you know, not have them make us pay a whole lot of money. Um, it is just – I can see how they would see that. And how they would be blind to the fact that no, this is bad, and you are you know paying for it now because you actually did something bad. Let's uh, let me close with a quote here, and then I'll I'll ask each of your opinions about about whether you'd recommend the book. Is uh, I think this kind of epitomizes the whole story. Is a quote from Bill Gates about Jobs uh, said to these reporters. So many of the people who want to be like Steve have the asshole side down. What they're missing is the genius part. <laughs> and I, I, you know, I think that summarizes a lot of it. it All does. right. So Susie, uh, are you going? I know you had said, I'll, I'll out you and say the the Isaacson book put you to sleep. So so many will times. You, will you will you finish this book? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, I've been reading this book on my iPhone in the Kindle app, and it's I only get through a couple of pages before I highlight something that I found fascinating or that I want to be able to refer back to. I've been using every single color of highlighting for different kinds of things mm-hmm. I want. So I'm getting a lot out of this. It's a really, it's a fast read. It's a good read. And yeah, it's got a lot of cool stuff. I really love the perspective of a journalist who knows the whole industry and can kind of say like, here's what I saw of Steve. Here's what he wanted me to think. Here's what I thought anyway. Um, I just don't, I haven't seen that in any other book about Steve Jobs. So I recommend definitely. All right, Leah, are you going to finish this book? Yes, going to finish this book (laughs) and I recommend it as well. Um, I mean, if you're, if, if this sort of thing is, if it appeals to you, if you're interested in Apple, if you're interested in Steve, or if you're just interested in kind of how like personal computing technology has evolved over the years, there's a lot of insight about how like the industry shift and the interesting relationship between Microsoft and Apple. There's a lot of insight about that. Um, it's it's an enjoyable read. Like Susie said, it's, it's fast, but it's not fluffy. Like there's a lot of information presented here um, that is really, really fascinating. And it's, well, it's great to hear um, from so many different sources too. There's a lot of uh, insight from lots of different people, so. I uh, will have to check back with you when you're done with the book and see how angry you are about the latter part of it or, or, or think what, <laughs> okay. what, about, or what you found out about. Uh, Mr. Carlson, what do you think? Uh, will you recommend this book to others? To read? I, I will definitely read this book. Oh, no, I, I already read it. Um, <laughs> yes. You've already forgotten it. Yeah, yes, I would. And, and actually, um, I would do it for two reasons. I mean, in addition to everything else that we've talked about, um, two of the things that stuck with me the most is, uh, number one, uh, and, and I think this is something that people don't really give Jobs credit for. Um, he was really a master of timing uh, because he could see trends that were coming up or uh, especially later because he could pivot so quickly. 
um, like like timing plays such an important role in so many things, whether it's um, negotiating with Disney over what to do about uh, Pixar and uh, you know ultimately selling it to them. Uh, whether it's you know um, <laughs> negotiating with Apple to bring on next, like a lot of 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 the successes of Steve Jobs had to do with with the fact that that he could either do things quickly or he could wait things out and and you know really do things to his favor. The, the, the second thing that I think, and I think that my biggest surprise, like uh, uh, enjoyable surprise, there are a lot of amazing quotes from Bill Gates. Throughout, mm-hmm, yeah, and, oh, yeah, mm-hmm. and you know, um, like there's a lot of stuff from Tim Cook, although it's all basically at the end. And th- there's a section in the back that that uh, talks about where all the sources and the interviews happened, and so it it, it seems very clear. Like like they talked to Tim Cook uh, once, and and I think Tim was probably doing a, a little bit of of PR spin when he was talking. Um, but uh, with Gates, like a lot of his quotes, it really come across as you know him just being like very candid, very straightforward. Um, you know, self-deprecating at times when you know they'd be talking about, oh yeah, yeah, Steve absolutely had a better sense of of design than I did. I just really didn't care. Um, there's one section where he says, you know, I can look at at a program and and, and see how how beautiful it is or how how well it's done. Uh, but you know, Steve could could do the experience and and all of that. And so if if nothing else, read this as a a great look into uh, Bill Gates and Steve Jobs relationship as told by Gates that's really unvarnished. Yeah, I agree with that. I was surprised um, by that. You know, the thing that surprised me most in this book is how much Steve Jobs and Bob Iger liked each other. (laughs) Oh, yeah, they were buds. It was, I mean, I don't know really anything about Bob Iger, except that Jeffrey Katzenberg was so hated that when Iger came in, he was apparently like welcomed as a savior because he just wasn't as big a jerk as Katzenberg was. And he, you know, and he also helped restore, uh, I mean, Katzenberg didn't just, you know, did a lot of good at Disney, clearly at, at points and uh, Iger uh, did a lot, um, did a lot more. Oh, wait, am I saying it's Katzenberg? Uh, Eisner. Uh, Eisner, I'm sorry, Eisner rather. But um, yeah, Eisner was really, right, he's really disliked. And um, so, but the fact that Iger uh, was very clever about how he approached Steve initially and quickly won his trust, made the whole, you know, the future of Disney is going to be partly on the back of that Pixar acquisition, and um, which was brilliant. And then just the touching moments, way Bob is quoted, I don't think I've ever heard a CEO talk as... I don't know, like sensitively about another person that way in this context. So it was very interesting. That friendship and uh, it was clearly a friendship. It's clearly a lot of respect. And that surprising bit that Iger says they'd signed all the papers and Jobs says, look, my cancer's back. I haven't told anybody except my family. If you want to back out, I'll understand. And you're like, oh, my God. Like that is that is a remarkable moment. Um so I'd rec- I think this book is going to be part of a collection of books people will need to read. And, and I think there's going to be an ultimate book that happens in the future that is – these are – even this one is too fast and too close. And I think we're going to see a better assessment that's more comprehensive and, and, um, uh, and more well-rounded eventually. But I think reading – if someone's really interested in the history of Apple and the history of Steve Jobs, this is going to be a great addition to, uh, to that picture. So let's close the book on the latest Steve Jobs biography, and we'd love to hear what you think about it. You can comment on the podcast at Macworld.com. You can leave comments on the site, or you can send email to us at podcast at Macworld.com. And let me thank this week's guest, Jeff Carlson. Thanks for coming on to talk about the book. Thank you so much. Leah Yamshon, thank you for being here and being part of this podcast. Thank you for having me. A pleasure. And Susie, you and I will talk again next week. Sure thing. I don't know if I ever introduced myself, but I'm Glenn Fleischman. I'm a senior contributor at Macworld, in case you're wondering who I am. (laughs) And we'll be back next week. This has been Macworld podcast number 450 for April 1st, 2015. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon.